Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. It's Tuesday, January 24th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Supreme Court did a deep dive into the shallow end of an investigatory matter and came up emptier than the Topeka Board of Ed. Nine nothing decision. Remember? The court's marshal had no culprit, but man, did she have a lot of convos. So it's great they interviewed the night janitor, the guy who makes the soup in the cafeteria, but did the search for justice include the justices? No mention in the initial report. Did that supposedly impressive number include the nine? Gail A. Curley, the marshal, then issued another report saying, quote, conversations with justices had been an iterative process in which they were asked questions, but also got to ask questions. That sounds great. Did you do it? And what if I did? Oh, I see. It's not a it's not a dodge. It's iterative. The emphasis on the number of interviews to burnish one's investigatory credentials is legion nowadays. So many reports brag about the number of pages of documents and how many interviews were conducted. I just read the New York Times received thousands of pages of documents and interviewed hundreds of people to determine that sports gambling is popular. Or Jeff Perlman, for his new book on Bo Jackson, conducted over 700 interviews. Bo knows overkill. Now, there are some investigations that do have an impressive number of interviews. Here's former New Jersey Governor Tom Kane of the 9-11 Commission. We have reviewed as a commission two and a half million pages of documents. We've interviewed over 1,200 individuals, including experts and officials past and present. And the findings there were solid. But you could also brag about the number of interviews you've done if the interviewing you were doing was about Benghazi. Here's Trey Gowdy. Um, after more than 100 witness interviews, uh, including more than 80 uh, with witnesses no other committee of Congress talked to, and tens of thousands of pages of documents, uh, that is the single greatest impression that we are left with, that there are men and women who love this country enough and what it stands for and how it can inspire others to serve in dangerous places under dangerous circumstances. That conclusion doesn't seem to justify 100 interviews, but okay, I guess now the question of Benghazi is settled. Wait, after reviewing 8,000 pages of documents, I have concluded that the question of Benghazi is not settled. Maybe what's settled is how to pronounce Benghazi. It's Benghazi, right? But really, we're not sure what the question is. But if you want a commission that was as thorough and detailed as the number of interviews would indicate, I turned to the January 6th commission. And you know who one of those interviews wasn't with, but should have been? Ginny Thomas. Because on January 6th, 
She was texting the White House chief of staff. In one, Thomas writing, quote, Help this great president stand firm, Mark. Biden and the left is attempting the greatest heist of our history. And I'm not saying that Ginny Thomas had the means, the motives, and the method to leak the Dobbs decision, but I do have some questions in that regard. And maybe a good investigation would have answered my questions, and then maybe I'd be satisfied, and we'd call it an iterative process. But Ginny Thomas was not interviewed. The marshals eventually disclosed, and this is in her own words, I followed up on all credible leads, none of which implicated the justices or their spouses. On this basis, I did not believe that it was necessary to ask the justices to sign sworn affidavits. To me, the signing of the affidavit is not the important part. The talking to the wife of the justice who put herself in the middle of politics, who is a self-defined political activist who tried to counteract the constitutionally proper result of the last election, I fault the investigator for not looking a little harder into her. Now, I've said that the court still has legitimacy. It does. The Dobbs ruling upended American life, not because it wasn't followed, but because it was. The court's legitimacy is a fact. But normatively, i.e. the question of should it have legitimacy, I don't know, take my critiques as trying to help you, Justice Roberts. I would like the questioning of SCOTUS legitimacy to be off the table. But the court isn't even acting like a place that understands how a legitimate institution would operate if it were one. I'm not saying you must find the leaker. I am saying that you must actually try and not defer to the type of ceremony, opacity, and supposed infallibility that cast dishonor on this honorable court in the first place. And I did 8,000 interviews and read 79,000 pages of single-spaced type to come to that not exactly hard-to-figure-out conclusion. On the show today, another mass shooting in California, the combined ages of the two Asian men who perpetrated the crimes, 138 years old. A look at how unusual it is for that to be the demographic profile of a mass shooter. But first, Sackett Sony was a community organizer working so that laborers rebuilding New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina would not be ripped off. He never anticipated that he would soon be leading 500 Indian workers to break out of forced labor camps in Texas and Mississippi. It is a crazy story. He's written a very well-done book about it, and he's here to regale us up next. Sackett Sony and the Great Escape. Sakit Sony is so many things. He's a labor activist. He founded an organization that doesn't just do this as a one-off, but makes the point that so many of our laborers are necessary to our economy and way of life and post-climate disaster rebuilding, and yet we do nothing except shunt them aside after they're used up. But he's also a person who essentially orchestrated a righteous jailbreak, which led to a hunger strike, a thousand or many hundred mile march, and a landmark legal decision. And that is all documented in his new book, The Great Escape, a true story of forced labor and immigrant dreams in America. Socket, welcome to The Gist. Thank you, Mike. Great to be here. 
How did you first come across the men that are on the cover of your book and were the subject to what I called a jailbreak, but was really um, just a means of getting justice for them, justice which America actually guarantees them? How did you first come into contact with them? Well, the story actually starts when I came to the U.S. Uh, from India for college. Um, my parents were the only parents in the history of uh, Indian civilization to let their son come to America to study theater. Um, that's what mm -hmm. I was doing when I missed Did you say, no, I want to be an anesthesiologist there? And they said, no, you're studying theater. And in fact, the myths of India. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's right. Well, well, actually, it was, it was, it was the opposite. They, they pleaded with me to do something that would, yeah. uh, you know, let me uh, pay the rent. Um, I, I, I just clung to my dreams and I was, I was studying theater, uh, trying to be a theater director when I missed an immigration deadline and found myself out of status. Um, at the time I thought it was no more serious than an overdue library book. And it might not have been except nine 11 happened and overnight, right. um, like thousands of immigrants, I lost my foothold in normal American life. But that experience turned me from theater to community organizing. Uh, my real education as an organizer was when I went down to New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. And what I saw was that the Gulf Coast had become the world's largest construction site. And black and brown reconstruction workers were gathered to seek work to rebuild uh, in the shadow of a 60-foot-tall statue of Robert E. Lee. Um, that's where I was when I got a mysterious midnight phone call that put me on the trail of the men on the cover of the book, um, on the trail of what wound up becoming one of the largest cases of forced labor in modern U.S. history. Yeah, so Katrina didn't make landfall in New Orleans. It made landfall in, well, near Pascagoula, Mississippi, and the Gulf Coast there, the Treasure Coast, they sometimes call it, was one of the sites of rebuilding, certainly in New Orleans also. But it went all the way west from New Orleans into Texas. And That's this right. is where some of the men contacted you and told you to come to uh, Sacred Heart Church, which they called what? They called it the secret Catholic church. The call I got was from an anonymous Indian man who was too scared to give his name. Uh, he said he was in trouble and to look for him at the secret Catholic church. And I thought, wow, what on earth is an Indian man doing uh, in Pascagoula, like you said, deep in the heart of where uh, Katrina made landfall? What was a man from India doing there? And, and what was he doing there? Well, what I discovered was that he was one of the 500 Indian laborers who had been lured to the U.S. on promises of good work um, and green cards. He was promised a green card and convinced to pay $20,000, he and the 500 others, $20,000 a piece to come and rebuild storm-damaged oil rigs in the U.S. Gulf Coast. Well, when they arrived, it wasn't on green cards, but on temporary work visas. These visas bound them to a single employer. They weren't allowed to um, shift from one company to another. And they worked in barbed wire labor camps in round-the-clock shifts, rebuilding oil rigs, and the green cards were nowhere in sight. They were sold an American dream, and then they were dropped into an American nightmare. The green cards could never be in sight. Anyone who knows anything about the immigration system, there's no way to promise someone uh, on this kind of visa or even a fake HB2 visa that they could get a green card, right? That's right. The American company was this big Mississippi oil rig builder. And um, 
they made the promises, but the person at the center of the scheme, uh, the one who went all the way to India to recruit the men, bring them back, was actually a liberal New Orleans lawyer, an immigration attorney who knew the immigration system in and out and knew how to construct these promises. Um, he was a guy who thought of himself, Mike, as the immigrant's best friend. He was for a long time, but after Hurricane Katrina, he was facing a personal and financial crisis, and he took a job with this company orchestrating this scheme to provide cheap workers to this oil rig builder. It was a Faustian bargain. Um, and this attorney and his partners, a Mississippi cop turned labor broker and an Indian labor broker, collected huge recruitment fees uh, from the workers. The company got hundreds of skilled workers for a fraction of the cost of U.S. workers. Um, but the workers were trapped uh, in a way that a federal jury would come to recognize as forced labor. This guy's name was Malvern Burnett. He's like the, a lot of the characters in your book, characters, real characters, and compliments to your writing. So as we have heard, you came you. to the U.S. to be a literature major. The book's very literary. But what what's your assessment of his motivations? Did he find a wrinkle in the system that he exploited and he told himself this would be good for everyone? Or at some point, can we say that it was clear that he knew that he was putting these hundreds of Indian laborers in horrible situations and he was either blind to it or knew about it and didn't care? Well, I mean, you just had to go there to see that the conditions were atrocious. The men lived 24 yeah. to a trailer in um, a company campus uh, that, uh, that the company called a man camp. Um, it was built... Um, above a toxic waste dump. Uh, the men were frozen, were fed frozen rice uh, and moldy bread. Um, you know, some of the biggest indignities were things I only understood when I got to know the workers um, who became some of the book's main characters. Um, for a worker named Ebi Raju, for example, um, the greatest indignity was being 20 feet up doing dangerous work on a platform, uh, a complicated, dangerous welding job uh, on an elevated platform when he gets a phone call from his pregnant wife in India, 10,000 miles away, and she's going into surgery. Not only could he not be with her, he wouldn't even get to see the son that was born that day in person for years. And I think he justified itself, uh, himself by calling it uh, a win-win. Um, workers get work, um, the company gets uh, gets inexpensive, skilled workers. Right. So one thing we haven't established, maybe my listener would say, okay, Socket seems like a bright guy and obviously a caring guy. Mike told us he wrote a good book, but why were they calling him in the first place? You're not a lawyer. You're not an officer of the court. You have no force of law except maybe knowing the law. You don't have a huge corporation behind you. You barely have a salary. So what were your resources? Well, my biggest resource actually was... Um, somebody who became my very, very close friend inside the labor camp. Uh, one of the workers became my inside man. And over the course of months, he and I uh, would meet secretly to orchestrate this escape that was out of a heist film um, without giving away a lot of details. It involved a lot of bribes to security guards, a lot of mini bar bottles of of wild turkey smuggled into the labor camp to give to the guards, right. and a fictitious Indian wedding that let us ferry 500 men into a local hotel, five men at a time, um, right under the noses of the guards. That's sort of uh, how the heist happened, how the, how the 
um, the great escape that is the, the, the title of the book uh, happened. What I didn't know then was that that night was only the beginning of a three-year-long journey that was half freedom yeah. march, half conspiracy thriller. It took us um, all the way to DC. I mean, after their escape, the men were high on idealism. They decided to march from New Orleans to DC to demand justice. And they believed when they got to DC, they'd reach this place that was called the Department for Justice. That's what they called it. So it was right there in the name. Get to the Department of uh, Department for Justice and, and, and you get what's in the name, you get justice. What we didn't know was that the fight would take not 14 days, the time it takes to walk to DC, but three years. We were up against yeah. an enemy inside the federal government with corrupt ties to the company. Was the strategy to march to engage the media to engage in hunger strikes along the lines of, if we remain anonymous, we're just going to be vulnerable. All they'll say is correctly so. They were here undocumented. They have all the leverage. But if we shame them, if we get a little bit of public sympathy on our side, a little bit of uh, public officialdom on our side, then we have a chance. So the night they escaped from the labor camp, um, they were high on the... Uh, you know, on the adrenaline of that, you know, <laughs> escaping a labor camp uh, might be the bravest thing they'd ever done. But after that, wow, what a bleak landscape. You, you know, uh, where am I going to get my foothold in America? How am I going to be able to stay and earn the money back is all they were asking. And I had to help them overcome their fear uh, and get them to see that in the United States, from time to time, when people have have fought for what they deserve, They've had to come out, come out in different ways, come out of hiding, come out about the status, come out about, uh, you know, their identity. Um, and these men, they needed to come out. So when they started marching, it was a huge coming out moment. They were saying, we're not hiding anymore. We're still scared, but we're going to uh, be out there. We're going to be marching. We're going to be uh, fully visible um, and we'll walk right up to the doorstep of the people who can solve our problem, uh, the Justice Department. Um, that takes care of people who have been trafficked and are experiencing forced labor in America. So that was the uh, the idea uh, behind the march. Along the way, the people who gave them a lot of strength were people who had also marched from time to time uh, in other chapters in U.S. history. Uh, people in New Orleans, in Atlanta, in North Carolina, who had been leaders of previous um, chapters of the civil rights movement uh, came and marched with the men. Um, and that buoyed them. But yes, it was a very frightening experience. I mean, uh, try marching um, through stretches uh, of Alabama and Mississippi all the way to D.C. Um, yeah, 100 you know, brown men or 500 brown 500 men. brown men and, and <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, cars on both sides with bottles flying out of them uh, and people jeering. Um, and that's, you know, it, it took really surviving all of that to get to D.C. So you eventually get the ACLU on your side, the Southern Poverty Law Center. There are several elected officials, uh, federal officials who are on your side championing you. But I note that in the book, you say, you know, one of the biggest problems was the idealism of the men. They were they were so idealistic. It's wrapped up in them saying, well, once we get to the Department for Justice, we'll get our justice. But, you know, you were idealistic, too. This is kind of a crazy plan, wasn't it? I mean, I didn't see anyone. I didn't see any. I didn't see any possibility that anyone was going to talk you out of it. And at some points, 
sure, I'm enthralled to your narrative devices, and maybe you made it seem like a longer shot than it is. But at bottom, they are here illegally. Our country is not predisposed to rewarding those who are here illegally. The politics of illegal immigration aren't really favorable to this type of person. Add it all up. I don't see any way that these men really, quote unquote, win. Yeah. And, um, you know, it was when their idealism was at its highest point that I actually got a glimpse into how uh, much danger they were in and how low our chances were of success. Um, You know, after they escaped from the labor camp, um, they were just uh, full of fear, absolutely, but also faith in America. They really believed that the American system would come to their defense. So when they started uh, marching to Washington, uh, they believed victory was at hand at the end of the march. What we then learned was we were up against a federal immigration cop with corrupt ties to the company, working to cast the men as the criminals. There was this federal agent at ICE who had very personal reasons of his own to try to cover up the scheme and jail or deport the workers. So at the same time as our campaign was getting battered in DC because of the machinations of this federal agent, Meanwhile, my own personal crises were coming to a head, my own immigration crisis. So um, all of that, you know, um, the, 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 the fact that an entire uh, dragnet were, was, was surveilling and chasing and, and working to hunt down this man, uh, the fact that my own immigration um, status was tenuous, um, all of that um, got to a head in D.C. And I, I really thought there was a moment when I thought all was lost. Um, I told the workers to scatter uh, and go into hiding. Um, I told them that ICE agents would likely hunt them um, down. Um, I really thought that we were finished. Um, but it was after that that the campaign then turned around. We, uh, we fought harder than we ever had and found, without giving it away, found the smoking gun uh, that, that's, that sort of dislodges the solution from the federal government. So I see this as a multi-part series on a streaming service. Uh, I don't know if you've optioned it. <laughs> Not yet. I know Obama's higher ground does stuff like this. He should, if he, uh, I think he might be a listener to the gist, so he should get a hold of this. But here's my question to you. Um, so much of this is cinematic because things that are good cinema are good drama and you're a good writer and it's inherently cinematic. We learn the characters. I do find people connect through characters and you um, make a special point to tell us some of the most important of these uh, men and we really get to know them and their families. What parts of it were the least cinematic and which parts of it, if you were constructing a perfect narrative in a writer's room, would be the most complicated to um, deal with? Hmm. Really great question, uh, Mike. I'm trying to think here. Well, I, I think that um, in terms of what I thought would be the least cinematic and maybe the least interesting, um, but that I was surprised by once I started writing was my own personal story. Um, I, huh. I initially, I thought that, that I would largely stay out of the book uh, and, and just be a reliable narrator of the book, but soon realized um, that a book like this needs me to be in it. I was part of the events of the book, uh, and now a reader needs me to be the tour guide. Um, but then I have to really come across as just as imperfect, just as complicated, um, you know, as the rest of the characters in the book. 
the the immigrants in this book are not saints, uh, and the uh, Americans who trafficked them are not all bad. Um, mm-hmm. I, I tried to portray them having complicated motivations, um, and I had to do the same for myself. So um, I think in a writer's room, the events leading up to the heist and the great escape itself, the night of the great escape, it's hard to pull off, but can actually also be really, really fun. I mean, uh, think about these uh, these huge logistical exercises that are really fun to watch if they're executed well, uh, you know, right. in a Steven Soderbergh movie or uh, or that... Or The Great Escape uh, itself. Oh, The Great Escape. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You know, there's there's something really satisfying about watching a great team pull off an enormous heist uh, when 16 things uh, could have gone wrong and all 16 have to go exactly right. And that's kind of what happened um, from the fr- from from every mini bottle of wild turkey uh, to, to the idea that a hotel owner actually had to believe we'd rented his hotel for a wedding. <laughs> and that all the things associated with a wedding were not there. And so we have to explain, uh, explain why. Um, you know, all of that had to work. And so that that sounds, uh, just imagining a, a, a writer's room, that, that both sounds like a, a challenge, but also a fun challenge. What Sony does is he runs the organization called Resilience Force, and he's there now. There was an excellent New Yorker Radio Hour piece about him. I think I'll post it in the show notes. He's doing the work, and he's written the book. It's called The Great Escape, A True Story of Forced Labor and Immigrant Dreams in America. Socket, thanks so much. Thanks, Mike. What a pleasure. And now the spiel. Yesterday, we talked about the horrific murder outside of Los Angeles in Monterey Park. And the main component of my talk was that liminal period between when we knew the facts of the shooting and before we knew the identity of the shooter. It was not a hate crime or what we mean by a hate crime because the murderer was himself, like his victims, Asian. The same is true, or at least the identity or ethnicity of the murderer in this second case near San Francisco, Half Moon Bay, an Asian man apparently killed seven people, former co-workers. In the Monterey Park case, the motivation seems to have been something along the lines of a disgruntled ex-husband. He also worked in that ballroom. So if we're going to spend a lot of time, I figured, if we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the race of the shooter sort of being exculpatory in terms of it being a hate crime. What about just focusing on this odd fact that we've had two mass shootings in a row? That's not odd for America, but they were both perpetrated by Asian men, old Asian men. So of that phrase, old Asian men, the one that's almost always true is men. And the one that's almost never true is old. These two shooters are much older, orders of magnitude, standard deviations older than the normal, the usual mass murderer. Although America's most prolific mass shooter from Las Vegas was 64 years old at the time of the shooting. On Twitter and other places where people talk without information, you often hear whenever there's a mass shooting, and it is as often as the case, a white shooter, another white person 
perpetrating such a crime. And I think this is generally the perception that while most shootings are not perpetrated by white people, mass shootings, gunmen, disgruntled lunatic with an AR-15, that is the purview of the white man. But I've gone over all of the information and the databases out of curiosity and because I think most media are just not eager to touch this question to see how true that is. And we'll now present my findings to you. The best database on this is the Violence Project Mass Shooter Database. You could define mass shooter however you want. It just means more than one person shot, right? But they do it very close to how the FBI does it, which is there has to be four murdered people, not including the shooter himself. And once you have that as a baseline, you have something like almost close to 200 mass shootings, 180 of which we know the identities, the ethnic identities of the perpetrators. And of these mass shootings, where we know the identity, the ethnic identity, the ethnic identification of the perpetrators, 99 of them were done by white people. This is actually about 55% of the overall database for which we know the race. And of course, there are questions. Does Bosnian count as white? That's one entry. Debate that all you want. It doesn't change the overall statistics. But of the people coded as white and generally seen as white in this database, 99 out of a little more than 180. It's about 55%. Now, we live in a country, depending on how you count it, non-Hispanic whites are somewhere near 60 So it's disproportionately low. Also, you should consider that this database started, the first entry was Charles Whitman in 1966 in the tower of the University of Texas. So if you did a rolling average of the percentage of whites in the population, 55% would be even lower than the first few decades in which mass shootings were counted. And so where are Asians? How prevalent or common is it for an Asian American or just an Asian person to perpetrate a mass shooting. The not common, 21 of the mass shooters were Asian. By the way, 17 were Latino, which is very disproportionately low. 21, given the fact that Asians, South Asians, East East Asians are something like 4% of the U.S. population. This is actually higher. There's around 10%, a little higher than 10% of all the mass shooters. And in fact, of the deadliest of the mass shooters, the third worst mass shooting, the Virginia Tech shooting, was perpetrated by an Asian American. Uh, there was the Binghamton shooting, which was also one of the 20 worst shootings in U.S. history perpetrated by an Asian American. And if you consider the mass shooting that occurred the other day in Mount Monterey Park, that's one of the 30 worst mass shootings. It winds up consistently being something like one in 10 of mass shooters, one in 10 of the worst mass shooters are Asian. This is more than double the prevalence in society. However, it's not the end of the story because I found an interesting study put forward or published in the journal Preventive Medicine. And this was done by, the lead author was Patricia Jewett, headline, U.S. mass public shootings since Columbine, victims per incident by race and ethnicity of the perpetrator. They found that white shooters had higher median fatalities. It's close, but it was the median number of fatalities for a white shooter was six, for a non-white shooter was five, and the median number of total victims. So if you take into account the wounded, nine versus seven. They also point out that policy has been in the United States for 
white people to get access to guns more easily and black people to be denied guns. However, I don't see how this actually works out with the fact that the majority of murder victims and actual murderers are African Americans, although a great number of those shootings are interpersonal and they're done with handguns. And so I think the premise of these authors is that mass shootings often require semi-automatic weapons and those weapons are easier to acquire by white people and easier to acquire by people without pre-existing prison records, for instance. And the other fact is That if you define mass shooting, not as the violence project does, but as some other places like the Gun Violence Archive does, is just literally taking it as a mass number of people were shot, although the Gun Violence Archive describes it as four or more and they don't have to be killed, then you find something like three quarters or approaching three quarters of the shooting victims and the shooters were African American. So this all complicates things, and I just thought that given what I talked about yesterday and given the dearth of information on this subject in the media, I just thought it was somewhat of my responsibility to bring it forth for you. I also draw no great conclusions except for the fact that if you want to retreat onto blaming this on race or whiteness, it's it's inaccurate. It's statistically inaccurate. And beyond that, I think we should look to the guns, not the race of the perpetrator, not the motives of the perpetrator, but the policies that we all pass and say that we can live with. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca, CEO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's Advertise Cast. Oh, the collaboration, all the collaboration we do. Sometimes we try to each laborate on our own, and then we say, no, let's collaborate. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Umperu, Peru, du Peru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>